The first of uh, this evening's two readings is taken from Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. That can be found on page 689 in the Church Bibles. Isaiah, chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. And briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he who looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. And the second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 21 verse 33 to 46 and this can be found on page 990 in the Bibles listen to another parable there was a landowner who planted a vineyard he put a wall around it dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? You'll bring those wretches to a wretch's end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. 
but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ben. Now, I don't know if you've ever been at a party uh, and you're aware that uh, an important guest has arrived because there's a sort of flurry of activity over in this corner. And um, you don't recognize who the person is, but clearly other people do. The camera phones are out and so on. People um, taking a little cheeky selfie and that kind of thing. And you're saying, who is that? And then someone says... You know, it's David Beckham or something. You say, who's that? Um, no, but, you know, it's that, you, that kind of thing. In a very small way, that is what this parable here in Matthew 21 is about, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. Now, if you just turn back a page to the beginning of chapter 21, um, you'll see that Jesus has entered Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. It's Palm Sunday, so we know it's a week before uh, his, less than a week before his crucifixion. Uh, The crowds welcome him as king, waving their palm branches. It's rather like a kind of welcome home parade for the Olympic team. They say in verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Effectively, long live the king. And more importantly, quoting from Psalm 118, a royal psalm that recognizes God's king with those words. And then the whispering starts. Do you see verse 10? When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? This is, I would dare to say, the biggest question in the universe. The most important question you could ever ask. Who is Jesus? Clearly, both then and now, responses to this question vary considerably. The crowds in verse 11 answer, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And that's how many people saw Jesus then and indeed still today. A good teacher, a fine man, good example, died a tragic death. Um, Life ended in failure, but some of his teaching still holds good today. There were others, of course, in Jesus' time who said, this is a troublemaker who must be silenced, a local teacher who's stirring up the crowds. So by the end of the chapter, verse 46, they're looking to arrest him. But of course, to others, I guess to most of us here this evening, Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the savior of the world. And we see this debate about who Jesus is very clearly in today's parable. So Jesus is in conflict with the religious authorities. They're saying, who are you? And Jesus answers by telling them stories. And this is the third parable in Matthew 21. Now, I don't know about you, but I think many of us would think telling a story is a rather weak way of making a point. Yeah, fine, let's have it as a kind of illustration, maybe a bit of padding to lighten the sermon, that kind of thing. Um, Much better to have sort of 
rigorous argument, rather as Paul does in Romans, uh, or philosophical debate, because uh, that's what people like, and it shows that we're thinking, intelligent people. Jesus is quite happy to tell stories. And they're so effective, these stories, because they, as the argument sort of gets in under the radar. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus's point sinks home in a way that perhaps a kind of face-to-face argument might not work. So in verse 45, at the end of the parable, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus's parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him. But it was more than the fact that they'd been sucked in uh, by Jesus' story. Imagine for a moment that you are going to see a school play, um, primary school play. Maybe you've got a godchild in a play or niece or nephew or something like that. Um, and you arrive late. And you don't know the school at all, and you're going up and down these faceless corridors looking for the, 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 the gym, which is where the, the play is taking place. And you get there, get the, you can sneak in quietly into the back, and you suddenly find that actually what you're doing is walking onto the stage, stage left, in the full glare of the spotlights. Well, that's what Jesus' parable does here, and it's so effective. Jesus, the, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they're asking, who is this? And they suddenly find themselves in the spotlight of Jesus' story. Now, this is told two or three days before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And in these verses, he gives a brilliant 12-verse summary of Old Testament history, as well as a prediction of what's going to happen in the next few days, as well as how history is going to be wrapped up. He does it in 12 verses. It's brilliant. I've got three headings for us this evening. First, the canvas. This parable of the tenants in the vineyard picks up on a recurring theme in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, of a vineyard. It's a very familiar picture in Israel. We've just had, Ben's just read to us from Isaiah 5, Psalm 80 is another one. And Jesus' religious hearers, who will have known their Old Testament well, will have known exactly what he was talking about. So Isaiah 5 begins, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then in Matthew 21, verse 33, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower, and so on. They would have been saying, we know this story. Bringing fruit from a vineyard was a familiar concept. Back in the creation story in Genesis, God makes order out of chaos And he does so by creating a garden, not a jungle, a garden. When we came back from uh, a few weeks away, we went went on a camp and then a holiday. So after three weeks away, uh, the first thing I noticed on return to the house is how everything sort of green in the front had grown. Um, So 
the wisteria sort of all over the, f the first floor window. So my neighbor says, uh, you'll be wanting to cut that jungle back, which means don't mess up the neighborhood with your scruffy garden. <laughs> and uh, more, more uh, significantly for me was the, uh, the prickly bush, right as you come in the front gate, had just bushed right out. So you had to scrape your arm as you walked past the bush. So having unloaded the bags, out came the secateurs. The creation story is bringing order out of chaos. And I was trying to bring some order into our garden, into our front yard. And the story of the Bible is about God's determination to bring order out of chaos, to return a fallen world to paradise. You notice that the Bible begins with a perfect garden. And if you remember when we looked at Revelation, it ends with a perfect garden. And actually a key moment in the middle is Jesus' wrestling in the garden of Gethsemane. But a perfect garden at the beginning and the end, sort of book bookend the Bible. And God is determined to bring this kind of order out of chaos, to rescue a rebellious people to live under his rule. So in verse 34, we see that what God is looking for is fruit. That is changed lives, godly people. Evidence that our lives have been rescued from the chaotic disorder of the jungle and that our lives are beginning to look like a beautiful garden, producing what Paul calls the fruits of righteousness. Or um, he also talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, I don't know if you ever catch yourself uh, asking, you know, why do I go to church on a Sunday? I, I guess um, for many of us, Sundays, well, it's Sunday, isn't it? And that's what we do on a Sunday. We go to church. It's sort of part of the routine. Perhaps sometimes, you know, if it's been particularly dull, we think, um, well, I'm doing God a favor here, <laughs> turning up at church. But actually the purpose of church life is to help us to live godly lives through the coming week. Sure, we're here to sing God's praises, to worship him, to, to hear his word read and preached and to pray and encourage one another, but all of that is so that we are better equipped to live for him through the rest of the week. God is looking for fruit. Do you see, verse 34, he sends his servants to collect his fruit. Verse 41 he talks about sharing the crop, sorry, giving him his share of the crop at harvest time, fruit. And again in verse 43, he'll take the kingdom away and give it to people who will produce its fruit. That's what God wants and what God hates is having people who call themselves his own and produce no fruit. Fruit, fruit, fruit. And from the overgrown, chaotic jungle of our world, God is seeking to create a beautiful garden that is his church, that is his people, a garden that will produce fruit and evidence that he is at work. And it's my prayer that that's what God sees when he looks at St. Michael's, 
the beginnings of a beautiful garden. Of course, we're not the finished work yet, but the beginnings of a beautiful garden. That's my prayer that that's what God sees when he looks at at my life, as he looks at your life, the beginnings of a beautiful garden. So that's the, the canvas, if you like, the broad context of this story. The second heading is the characters. Who are the key characters in this Bible, uh, in Bible, but this parable? Now, it helps us to be clear of who the key players are in this story. So what I'm going to suggest we do is imagine, I know a number of you teach in the you know, children's church, trekkers and explorers and that sort of thing. We're going to do it a little bit like that. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'd be grateful if you'd give me an answer, and a, a hopefully a helpful answer from the text. Um, I promise you these are not difficult questions. Um, That's the whole point of the parable because Jesus wanted the religious leaders to understand what he was on about. Um, In fact, the phrase, blindingly obvious, might actually have been invented for the chief priests and their reaction to this story. So here we go. We're going to play a game of who's who and what's what. And you'll need to have your text open in front of you. Question one, very easy start. What is the vineyard in verse 33? There's a big clue in Isaiah 5. People of Israel, thank you very much. Uh, the, ch- the chief priests and the elders uh, who are quizzing Jesus all knew that Israel was God's vineyard and they owed fruit to God. Question two, who is the owner of the vineyard? God. Yeah, sorry, I should have given you the clue. Verse 33. Yeah, God. He is the righteous ruler. He's the owner of all things. Question three. Don't be shy about this. They're not difficult questions. Who are the tenant farmers in verse 33? Yeah, teachers of the law, the priests, the Pharisees, all the religious elders, whose job it was to make sure that the vineyard produced fruit. Question four, who are the servants in verses 34 to 36? Just give you a little hint. They're sent by the owner on more than one occasion. So who are the servants? Prophets, excellent. The prophets who were consistently rejected and persecuted and sometimes even killed. Now, uh, given such a response to the owner's servants, given that no fruit was forthcoming from the vineyard, We would expect the owner just to say, I've had it with you. And in fact, if you remember back in Isaiah 5, that's pretty much what he says. Uh, In verses 5 and 6, he says, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. This is when it produces no good fruit, just just bad fruit. This is what I'm going to do. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. Fair enough. If it's a useless garden, he's going to turn it over. God has every right to give up on the project. But no, verse 37, he sends his son saying, They will respect my son. So those are the candidates, the key characters. 
And we now come to our third heading, the climax. So we've had the, the canvas, the, uh, the broad uh, picture, uh, context of the story. Uh, we've had the, the candidates, the characters, the key players. Finally, the climax, what happens next? So here we go, we've got three more questions. Question five, who is the son? Verse 37. Jesus, very good, very good, very good. And those of you in, G in children's church will know the story of the children in the Sunday school class who were asked, what is grey, has a bushy tail, and climbs trees and stores nuts at winter? And there was a silence in the class, and eventually one child put up his hand and said, I know the answer should be Jesus, but it sounds awfully like a squirrel to me. <laughs> and, yeah, it is Jesus, and you may think this is blindingly obvious, and that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He wants them to see who he's talking about. Question six, what is the event that Jesus is referring to when he says in verse 39 that they took him, that is the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him? What, what event is he referring to? Crucifixion. Just a few days away. That terrible moment when God comes to earth and we murder him. Jesus, who people might have identified with the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, clearly puts himself in the camp of the prophets, the ones who were persecuted and rejected. This is a truly shocking outcome. Perhaps where, you know, we maybe know this parable and we think, yeah, that's what happens. Maybe we know the new, we do know the New Testament story and we know that's what happens to Jesus. It is truly shocking. Sometimes perhaps we take communion and all we feel is warm fuzzies and we fail to be shocked by the fact that when God came to earth, we murdered him. And we fail to see what unbelievable love brought him here. And what amazing grace that God persists in coming. He could have just turned us over, as he said he would do in Isaiah 5. But no, he persists. It's a persistent love. He doesn't give up. He goes on. He gives us another chance to respond. Let me give you this example. The house that we live in is owned by the Duke of Westminster. It's part of the Grosvenor estate. Uh, you may know that sadly the, the Duke died recently. Um, so imagine that it's, it's a year ago when the Duke was still alive and St. Michael's they've kindly rented this property for us so that we can, can live there. And imagine a year ago um, we saw how much rent was being charged, and we said, this is really too steep. We refuse to pay. And the Grosvenor Estate could rightly say, well, I'm sorry, that's how you feel. You can go and find somewhere else to live. We're going to have tenants who will pay the rent. Now, just imagine that the Duke himself stepped in and said, no, well, let's just sort of reason with these people, and I'll send my son, and he can go and try and persuade this stroppy vicar to cough up and so the son comes and we murder him 
Now, even by today's brutal news that we see on our screens the whole time, that would be deeply shocking. And Jesus is trying to shock the chief priests and the religious leaders, and he's saying, and you are the ones who are going to do this. It's an appalling outcome. So here is question seven, last question. Once the son has been killed, and Jesus says in verses 40 and 41, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they reply, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. What two future events is he referring to? The second coming is one. Uh, I think he's talking more generally than the fall of the temple. Perhaps more in the future. Judgment. He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end. I think maybe the fall of the temple is part of it, but I think it's a judgment when he comes again. Those who reject the son will be rejected by the landowner. If in my... Um, example of not paying my rent um, the, the, in, in that example the Duke of Westminster would have been perfectly entitled to send the police round to have me arrested you know, I, should, I deserve to be dealt with now if you've scored 7 out of 7 give yourself a pat on the back that's what they do isn't it in, in um, Sunday is that right in children's church little, little gold stars okay have a gold star Actually, it's not a difficult quiz, was it? And it wasn't meant to be because the chief priests and the elders were meant to get it and they were meant to get it straight away and they do, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Jesus deliberately makes it obvious, blindingly obvious, Everyone knows that those who behave like those tenants killing the son will face the the just and right judgment of the landowner. So, of course, the, the owner will come and sort them out. But even in his judgment, there is grace. Do you see in verse 41? He will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest. He will still have tenants. He still wants to see fruit. He doesn't give up on the project. Praise God that he doesn't. For any of, any of us here who are not Jewish, we, are, we should be extremely grateful to God that he didn't give up on the project when his son was rejected. It's a masterful parable, isn't it? Because the religious leaders get the point immediately. They realize that if they reject Jesus, they will be judged. They'll be thrown out of the vineyard. And Jesus concludes by switching the metaphor from the vineyard to the building. Jesus is no longer the owner's son, but he's a building block, particularly a capstone in verse 42. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. That is the keystone, sometimes the cornerstone, whatever, whichever interpretation you take it is the most important stone in the building the crucial stone foundation stone some people rejected that stone but jesus says he's absolutely key 
And Jesus says to them in verse 42, have you never read in the scriptures? Well, of course they'd have read it. it what he's really meaning is, haven't you got it? Haven't you grasped the truth that's here? And maybe he could say the same thing. He would say the same thing to the church today. Because it's very easy to become like religious leaders, to, to turn up at church, to know the scriptures, to know the kind of big story, to know all about Jesus, but not to know him. Never really grasp that Jesus is the saviour of the world and that the one who was rejected by so many died for you and for me to bring us to God. And the Jewish leaders completely miss this point about Jesus, and it's just as Jesus predicted. The very people who should have seen who Jesus was, I mean, if anyone was well qualified to work out who Jesus was, it would be those religious leaders. They don't get it. They reject him. So they, in turn, are rejected. And there's great irony as this parable concludes in verses 45 and 46, because the chief priests and the Pharisees know that the parable is aimed at them. They know that Jesus has hit the target. It hurts. They hate him for it. They're determined to shut him up. And yet they continue, as we read on in Matthew, to act out the part that Jesus has outlined for them in his little story. They will kill him. So they will face his judgment. And God will give and indeed he has given his vineyard to those who honour his son, to those who won't reject him, and to those who, like a healthy vine, produce good fruit. So in the death of Jesus, we see the justice of God, that those who reject the son will be rejected. But in the death of Jesus, we also see the love of God, the persevering love, the covenant love, the amazing, amazing love for those who honour him and follow him and in whose lives are seen the fruit of righteousness. And it's my prayer that our lives will increasingly show the fruits of righteousness that if we claim to be part of God's vineyard, we will be producing fruit and we'll do everything we can to sow and nurture and reap a bumper harvest for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in some ways it's very sad to read of well-educated, intelligent, religious people who just completely miss the point. Yet we thank you that the gospel is good news for all. And we thank you that you don't give up, that you will persevere with your beautiful garden. And we pray that in our lives, increasingly, little by little, slowly but surely, day by day, the fruits of righteousness will be seen in our lives. And we ask it for your glory's sake. Amen.